What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everyone is the same under the skin. Minasan konnichiwa. Hey everyone, today I'll discuss one of the most important Japanese writers of all time. He is considered the father of Japanese short stories, somewhat similar to Nikolai Gogol, Anton Chekhov, and Franz Kafka. One of his short stories is the origin of what is called the Rashomon Effect or Rashomon Principle, a mode of storytelling in modern cinema where an event is told from various characters' perspectives. Ryunosuke Aktagawa is one of the most brilliant Japanese fiction writers of the 20th century, who had a huge influence on Haruki Murakami and many other Japanese writers. But on the inside, the man was tormented throughout his life. He was 35 when he died. Despite his short life, he gave a unique perspective on the human condition through his many amazing short stories. Today, I'll talk about Akutagawa's life during a period when Japan was flourishing economically and becoming a superpower geopolitically, while this man was tormenting himself. I'll also summarize seven of his most famous short stories and discuss their themes. In the end, I'll discuss Akutagawa's unique writing style and read two of his famous haikus as well. So get yourself some sushi or sake or both and let me take you to early 20th century Japan. Life Ryunosuke Akutagawa was born in 1892 in Tokyo. His family owned a milk production business. His mother suffered from mental illness, so he was adopted and raised by his maternal uncle. Therefore, he took the Akutagawa name from him. To give you a little historical context, Akutagawa was born some 25 years after the Meiji Restoration of 1868, when Japan opened itself to foreign trade, which resulted in Japan rapidly industrializing as it absorbed Western science and technology. Prior to the major restoration from about 1600 to 1850s, for a period of almost 250 years, Japan had sealed itself off from foreign contact due to the fear of Christianity spreading in the country. But in the 1850s, the Americans showed up in their big boats with big guns and forcefully but politely asked Japan to open itself for trade, which resulted in Japan rapidly industrializing to compete with the Western superpowers. A hundred years later, in 1940s, again the Americans showed up to stop the Japanese imperialism and end the Second World War. So, Akutagawa was born at the time when Japan was growing rapidly, so much so that in 1905 it defeated Russia, perhaps the first Asian nation to defeat a European superpower. Not only Japan was growing economically, it was also growing geopolitically as it was looking to expand towards China, Southeast Asia, and so forth. At the time, Japan no longer saw China as a source of technology inspiration. Which it had for centuries. Now it looked to the West. As a result, Western education system was adopted to improve the country's infrastructure and economy. Akutagawa grew up reading classical Chinese literature, but his interest in Natsumi Soseki's novels shifted his attention to Western literature, especially English, French, and Russian. 
Suzuki, who was considered the father of modern Japanese literature, spent two years in London. As a result, he was influenced by Charles Dickens and other Western writers. So in 1913, when Akutagawa went to Tokyo University, he chose to study English literature, and he spoke good English. In 1918, he got married, which lasted until his death some 10 years later, and they had three children. He was a teacher for a brief period before becoming a full-time writer. In 1915, he published one of his first famous short stories, Rashomon. A month later, he met his hero and the father of Japanese literature, Natsume Sosuke, which gave him the confidence to continue writing. The following year, he wrote a very successful short story, The Nose, a Japanese version of Nikolai Gogol's short story of the same title, which I have spoken about before. Today, he is known as the father of Japanese short stories, but at times, Akutagawa found writing short stories hard, so he went even shorter by writing haiku under a pen name, Gaki. In a sense, short stories were a perfect way to express a snapshot of life, just like a haiku expresses a momentary feeling and reaction to a particular seasonal event. But obviously, it was a lot harder to earn a living by writing haiku, so he had to write short stories for the newspapers to make ends meet. In 1921, he went to China as a reporter, which had a negative impact on his health. After he returned to Japan, he wrote one of his most profound short stories, In a Bamboo Grove, which questions the idea of single truth. As his physical health deteriorated, it had an impact on his mental well-being too. The isolation of being a writer contributed to his demise later on, but it was his premonition and anxiety of inheriting his mother's insanity that finally drove him to insanity. Quote, I don't have the strength to keep writing this. To go on living with this feeling is painful beyond description. Isn't there someone kind enough to strangle me in my sleep? The Taisho period from 1912 to 1925, during which Akutagawa lived and worked, was a huge era of transformation as Japan required Western science and technology. While Akutagawa benefited from these changes, such as modern education, availability for novels, and freedom to write whatever he wanted, he didn't fit in with the spirit of nationalism, optimism, and most crucially, a sense of certainty prevalent among his peers. Throughout his short stories, he doubts, reflects, and questions the status quo, as well as the black and white certainty dominating the Japanese society at the time. Through his stories, he questions the sacred notions such as truth, honesty, morality, artistic goal, honor, reality, and more. In 1927, he started hallucinating and had bouts of insanity. He attempted suicide but survived. Quote, it is unfortunate for the gods that, unlike us, they cannot commit suicide. He didn't stop there. The second time he attempted, he succeeded by taking sleeping drugs in 1927. He was 35 years old. He wrote about 150 short stories. Akira Kurosawa combined two of his most famous short stories in 1950 classic film Rashomon. Today, he is considered one of the most influential Japanese writers of all time. The Akutagawa Prize, one of the most prestigious literary prizes in Japan, is named after him. So now I'll discuss some of his best-known stories to illustrate his genius. Rashomon, published in 1915, tells the story of a poor man and an old woman who meet at the Rashomon Gate in Kyoto, with a few ironic twists. They both live on the outside of city, as well as civilization, so to speak. Kyoto, back in the days, as the capital city, attracted all kinds of people from all over Japan, so a lot of poor immigrants, as well as locals, lived a tough life, and when they died, their bodies were dumped outside the gates. 
Today there are temples built to remember those abandoned souls with small Buddha statues. The man who has been recently fired from his job has a dilemma, whether to starve to death or become a thief. Among the corpses something catches his eyes, he notices something is moving. Intrigued, he goes closer. An old woman is stealing hair from the dead bodies to sell in the market for a few pennies. Seeing how morally low she has sunk, he decides he would rather starve than steal. But before he leaves, they have a chat. He questions her morality. She explains that stealing is the only option for survival. When your own life is on the line, you gotta do what keeps you alive. Also, the woman justifies her actions, saying that she's stealing from someone who was a terrible person. The corpse belongs to a woman who used to sell snakes, telling people it was fish. The man says, by your logic, I have every right to take your clothes in order to survive, because I'm starving. She has no moral defense, so he strips her off her robe and also kicks her when she resists and disappears into the night, leaving the woman without her clothes and possibly condemning her to death. Here, Aktagawa juxtaposes morality with the harsh reality of life. The servant wanted to uphold the law, chooses to starve than steal, but the dialogue with the woman transformed him right there and then into someone opposite to his own self a few moments later. Aktagawa doesn't take side, merely depicting how real life happens, how a simple interaction between two people changes the man beyond recognition. The Nose The Nose, inspired by Nikolai Gogol's 1836 short story of the same title, was published in 1916. It tells the story of a high-ranking Buddhist priest of Heian period at the famous Chorakuji temple in Kyoto whose long nose gives him a lot of trouble. Being an important priest also gives him access to imperial palace in Kyoto, so appearance is very important to him. This has given him an extremely vain personality, who thinks by pretending something doesn't exist, nobody would notice it. On the outside, he pretends his nose is not a problem, in the hope that nobody notices him. But in private, he's obsessed with his nose, always standing in front of a mirror. He secretly hopes to find someone else with a long nose so he can fit in. When one of his students tells him about a Chinese technique of shrinking the nose, first he pretends it's not an issue, but later he goes through the unorthodox medical procedures to reduce its size. The medical technique is pretty old school, which includes boiling the nose, stomping on it and removing its fat tissue. It works. The priest's nose is still hooked, but is smaller than before. He's happy, so he proudly walks outside without trying to hide it. Now here's a twist in the tale. His nose reduction backfires, before at least people respected him, but now everyone on the outside laughs at him. Before nobody brought it to his face, but now everyone is quite brazenly mocking him. This annoys him so much that he vents his anger by treating his students harshly. Now not only has lost respect, his nose is openly mocked. He wishes he had never gone through the nose reduction procedures. Things get really worse for him until one morning he wakes up to find himself with his original long nose. He's finally happy, now he can return to his old self before the plastic surgery, I mean Chinese medical procedures. This story should be available in all plastic surgery hospitals. I say Simon Cowell should have read it. In the nose, Akatagawa shows how far someone goes to keep their appearance. He goes out of his way to pretend there is no problem. Then, when his student suggests medical intervention, he goes to the extreme in the other direction. Despite him being a man of high ranks, it's that tiny body part that troubles him the most. 
Akutagawa, just like Google, shows how fragile the human mind is. The news becomes the sum of a person's being. In other words, all his effort is put into keeping his news as inconspicuous as possible, but it becomes an elephant in any room he goes into. As someone rises up the ranks socially on the outside, his psychological vanity on the inside becomes even more fragile. In a Groove Published in 1922, In a Groove, sometimes called In a Bamboo Groove, is Akutagawa's most profound short story. In the form of court documents, it tells the story of a murder of a samurai inside a bamboo forest in Kyoto, in which seven people give somewhat contradictory accounts of the murder. First, a woodcutter who found the body tells the police he didn't see any weapon but only a comb, a piece of rope and a sign of a struggle. Second, a priest tells the police that he saw an armed man and a veiled woman on a horse heading east of Kyoto. The third person who testified is an ex-criminal now employed by the police. He has caught a criminal called Tajomaru, who has the weapons belonging to the victim. Also, Tajomaru has killed before. The fourth person to testify is an old woman who identifies the victim as his son-in-law and tells the police that his daughter is the veiled woman and now missing. So the first four people are mere witnesses to the incident, but the next three people all claim to have killed the man, but only one can be true. The first person to confess the murder is a criminal Tajumaru. He tells the police that he lured the couple into the bamboo grove by talking about some hidden treasure. Once there, he attacked the woman first, but later had a duel with the man which resulted in his death. The woman, however, fled the scene and he never saw her again. He says he accepts the punishment that comes his way. The second person to confess to the murder is the missing woman herself, who tells the police that she killed her husband after being raped by Tajumaru, because their relationship was over and she couldn't look her husband in the eyes anymore. The third person to confess to the killing is the ghost of the victim who, through a medium, says that he killed himself after seeing his wife betraying him with another man. In this story, Akutagawa tries to question the concept of truth as something solid, concrete and objective. In the legal system, society's foundation, science and many other areas, we rely on facts and truths. There's always a logical path to get to the solid truth. However, Akutagawa shows us that the path is not always clear. When you are inside a bamboo grove, when all the trees look alike, you do get bamboozled and discombobulated. Today we live in big, crowded cities. As a result, we lose a sense of autonomy and a strong sense of ourselves, which may result in us sometimes losing our grip on reality or truth. In big, crowded cities, we become part of an urban organism, just like being inside a bamboo forest. Sometimes we no longer feel as a single individual, but part of a giant urban jungle. Thus, we get confused or get fused together with others, so we cannot recognize the truth. This is why many witnesses to a crime fail to tell a coherent account of the incident they witness. So humans are not always reliable in conveying what actually happened in reality. So Akutagawa's short story in a grove shows that sometimes we may never know the truth. The Spider's Threat Inspired by the fable of the onion mentioned in Fyodor Dostoevsky's masterpiece Brothers Karamazov, the Spider's Threat, published in 1918, tells the story of the Buddha one day walking in paradise when suddenly a criminal catches his eyes in the depth of hell down below. Imagine a deep well inside a beautiful garden. The garden is paradise and the well is hell. The man in his previous life did all sorts of terrible things and that's why he ended up in hell. 
But he also did one good thing. When in a forest one day, he stopped himself from crushing a spider under his foot. It was a deliberate act of goodness. The Buddha remembers it and decides to save the man from burning hell. He throws down a rope. Actually not a rope, but a single spider thread so the man can climb out of the hell into paradise. As expected, a lot of people in hell cling on to him in an attempt to get out too. When the prison door opens, everyone wants to get out. The man is climbing the spider thread slowly and he's almost out when he notices others clinging onto the same spider thread. Thinking it might snap, he yells at everyone that the spider thread belongs to him and him alone. Right at that moment, the thread snaps and everyone plunges back in the pool of blood. The man's selfishness, or me before others, cost everyone the freedom to get out. It's interesting that Akutagawa's hell is connected to paradise. Those in paradise can see what's happening in hell, and those in hell cannot fully see what's happening in paradise. You have to rely on your imagination. You could say the rich can see the poor, yet the poor occasionally get glimpses of rich people's lifestyle, which was beautifully depicted in the 2019 Oscar-winning Korean movie Parasite. On the surface, the story is about selfishness, but if you peel a layer back, Akutagawa shows the randomness of fate in Buddhism. The difference between heaven and hell ends up being a tiny spider threat. Akutagawa lived at a time when Japan was economically booming, but the social order was still pretty strict within a highly hierarchical social system. A small social or legal slip-up would have had huge social repercussions. Just as today, someone smoking a banned drug means years in jail while the same activity is totally legal in another part of the world. At the time during the Taisho period, there was a spirit of nationalism and anyone who deviated from it was shunned by others. Hellscreen Published in 1918, Hellscreen tells the story of a great artist commissioned by a wealthy man, Lord Horikawa, to create a folding screen depicting hell. For those who don't know, folding screens are equivalent to a great piece of art commissioned by rich people back in, let's say, 15th century. In order to create the folding screen depicting hell, the artist has to inflict pain and misery on his students as well as others in order to envisage hell so he can produce authentic hellish scenes. Also interesting to point out that Akutagawa was drawn to the theme of hell as sometimes he felt he was in hell in real life, at least in his head. The artist's obsession or dedication to art finally leads him to plead with the wealthy lord to burn a beautiful lady so he can complete his artistic depiction of a genuine hell. But here's a twist, instead of a random beautiful lady, the rich man makes the artist witness his own daughter burning. The artist's daughter was incidentally employed at the house of the aristocrat and also the subject of the Lord's romantic interest. It appears the rich man was rejected by the artist's daughters, so to avenge it, the Lord made the artist watch the gruesome death of his own daughter. The artist manages to complete the screen, but his artistic creation comes at a huge cost, the death of his own daughter. Now that the project is complete, he finally can reflect on the terrible consequences of his artistic endeavor. He then decides to end his own life too. Often great men of history achieved their greatness by inflicting pain inadvertently or deliberately upon those around them. Akutagawa shows that there's a very thin line between artistic dedication and dangerous obsession. In the process of achieving our goal, be it art or technology, sometimes we grow a tunnel vision. 
because we're so absorbed in getting to the top, getting the job done, or hitting the target, that we forget the cost of getting there. Throughout human history, great achievements always have come at a cost. The Egyptian pyramids, the Great Wall of China, or Taj Mahal in India are great monuments of human civilizations, built by thousands of men, some of whom lost their lives in the process. Today, most people who visit those monuments don't think of the cost, but mostly enjoy the end products. In fact, Akutagawa tormented himself for not being a good father to his kids and a good husband to his wife because he pursued art and literature. He could have got a well-paid job in the business sector or even teaching, but he dedicated his life to art of writing. Today we enjoy his stories, but it came at a cost to his mental health as well as his family living a tougher life. I recently talked about Somerset Moham's novel The Moon and Sixpence depicting the French artist Paul Gauguin's life, the so-called abandonment of his family for the sake of creating art. So the bottom line is any human achievement, be it individual or collective, comes at a cost to the creator or those around them. The problem with obsession is that we often don't know when to stop. Autumn Mountain, published in 1921, Autumn Mountain tells a story of a painting of the same title. Much like Marcel Proust's struggle with expectation versus reality, it asks the fundamental question, who creates beauty? An artist or the viewer's imagination? A novelist or the reader? Yenko, mesmerized by a painting, believing it to be the most beautiful in the world, wants to buy it. But the owner refuses to sell it. Years pass, then decades and five. Fifty years later, the narrator himself, curious, goes to see the painting. He is incredibly disappointed. Now that he reminisces with Yenko about the painting, they come to the conclusion that perhaps it was all in their head. The painting was never beautiful, but it was made to look beautiful in their imagination. Quote, Yet even a desolate life can reveal a world of beauty when viewed through a mist of tears. The story poses the question, who creates beautiful art, the artist's imagination or the viewer's imagination? Another important element is time. As time passes, while our imagination enhances beauty, reality fades and destroys beauty. People get older or your tastes become more refined. When you see it again, you laugh at yourself. As Proust said, a true paradise is a paradise lost. We fall in love with a person or an art, but as time passes, because we change while the art remains the same, it begs a question that beauty is not in the art, but inside us. The piece of art is a mere trigger. As Plato said, the truth, beauty or perfection only exists in the mind, not in reality. Kappa, published in 1927, the same year Akutagawa died, Kappa tells the story of a psychiatrist patient called number 23 who travels to the mythical land of Kappa, where everything works in the opposite of this world. For example, babies have the choice to be born or not to be born, also where jobless workers are eaten as food. He meets many inhabitants of Kappa, including a philosopher fool and the ghost of a suicidal poet, who incidentally resembles Akutagawa himself and has many of his ideas. Patient 23 and the dead poet have a discussion about philosophers such as Michel de Montaigne who prompted voluntary death, Arthur Schopenhauer who despite his pessimism didn't end his life, and more. On his return, patient 23 becomes a misanthrope. The short story shows the power of mind over body, but it can also tell us a lot about Akutagawa's own paranoia about inheriting his mother's madness. 
an internal struggle with life which resulted in him ending it in the same year as the story was published. Aktagawa lived under the weight of his mother's insanity which must have given him a sleepless nights throughout his adult life. In horror movies, what is terrifying is not the thing you see, but the thing you do not see. So Aktagawa, while not insane, had the inner fear of developing insanity. It is interesting to know that one of Aktagawa's inspiration was Nikolai Gogol, who also struggled with madness and starved himself to death. So in this story, Aktagawa envisions a world where he can confront his philosophical and literary heroes like someone confronting their parents for giving birth to them. Style. One of the most important characteristics of Aktagawa is the juxtaposition of two opposing things. He takes some of the most important concepts such as truth, beauty, righteousness, heaven, creativity and imagination and shows us how fragile they are and how thin a line there is between those concepts and their opposites. Often two sides of the same coin like in Taoist yin and yang. I should point out that Taoism came to Japan through Zen Buddhism so it has seeped into the culture so much that people try to avoid social confrontation at all costs. Aktagawa's stories deal with the opposites such as truth and untruth, artistic creativity and dangerous obsession, heaven and hell, honesty and dishonesty, imagination and reality are all separated by a thin line. Aktagawa also juxtaposes old Japanese fairy tales with modern or foreign stories like Gogol's The Nose as an example, in which he takes Russian inspiration and applies it to the old Japan. Another element of juxtaposition is between men and women. In his stories, women and men often play each other's roles. We see more strong women and weaker men. In his story, The Life of a Stupid Man, he confesses his own shortcomings. I think the Russian superfluous man in the works of Pushkin, Lermontov, Turgenev and Goncharov had a huge influence on him. He himself struggled with psychological issues, so he always saw himself as an inadequate man. The woman in his life had to take over where he lacked. As a writer, he was at home almost domesticated, which wasn't the norm for most Japanese men at the time who worked outside. Another element of Aktagawa's writing is his objective storytelling. He doesn't take a side or often leaves the judgment to the reader. Like Anton Chekhov, the Russian genius storyteller, he provides us with the facts of the story without judging the characters or sometimes he simply asks questions without offering any answers. In other words, he writes about the reality of what is rather than what should be. His non-judgmental approach is also present in Haruki Murakami's novel, who also has no overt ideology of his own. This somewhat unbiased approach resonates with a lot of people as it allows you to see things from an artistic point of view. Aktakawa's objectivity goes even further as he employs logic in his stories. You could say that he was looking at Japanese society through a western logical approach. As I said earlier, western education system was still fairly new in Japan when Aktakawa attended school. So he saw a slight disconnect between the logic of western education and the Japanese Confucian social structure based on age, ranks and social status where communitarian norms trumped individual freedom. Or you could say logic doesn't often translate in real life. A poor person stealing cannot be justified based on morality, but seeing it from a survival point of view it is justified. But Akutagawa doesn't pass moral judgment rather than exposing the shortcomings of morality, logic and reality. They are often incompatible in real life. Another element of Aktagawa's writing is his structure. His stories follow typical form but without a clear plot. 
We meet his characters without knowing who they are and what happens to them after the story ends. In other words, his characters are exposed through the main event. At the beginning we see them one way, but after the event we see them in a complete different light. In real life too, we do not know people until we see them struggle. The way someone solves a problem tells everything about that person. You could say Akutaga was a writer was more focused on the style than substance or process than the outcome. Every event in our lives changes us and defines us. So Akutaga was very much aware of the process of change rather than the outcome. Japan as a culture is often described as a how culture, where how you do something is as important as the outcome of it. In the West, an outcome-driven approach is more prevalent. Akutagawa famously had an argument with another Japanese novelist, Junichiro Kanizaki, on whether a story should have a clear plot or not. Akutagawa argued that stories do not need a clear plot, while Tanizaki favored a clear plot. A novel without a plot allows the reader to see a snapshot or a slice of life. But reading a plot-driven novel forces the reader to focus on the outcome or the end. For Akutagawa, it was the process that was important, not the outcome. A single moment, a single event. A Japanese haiku expresses a moment in time, feeling and reaction to outside stimuli like seasonal changes. So Akutagawa was trying to bring a slice of life to expose something about the human condition. Like haiku exposes a feeling within a particular moment in time. This is also apparent in Murakami's novel. Despite having a plot, his endings are never as enjoyable as the beginning or the middle of story that grabs your attention. Akutagawa's own mental struggle also played a major role in his writing. He rode through the pain and suffering, but this also gave him a unique perspective. Haruki Murakami speculates that Akutagawa was writing in order to escape the terrible anxiety of madness being passed on to him from his mother. It's often a cliché that most artists tend to have mental issues. In his case, it was the fear of mental illness that heightened his senses and sharpened his focus to write deep, profound stories. Quote, Life is more hellish than hell itself. In other words, the anxiety of waiting for something terrible is far worse than the actual event itself. The fear of death is far more stressful than the death itself. In this case, it was a fear of mental illness that ultimately defeated him. Today, Akutagawa short stories are read in schools throughout Japan and almost every Japanese person is familiar with his stories. His name has been adopted into anime, manga and he's highly revered in Japan for capturing the mood of the early decades of the 20th century. Akira Kurosawa's masterpiece Rashomon, based on two of Akutagawa's stories, one of the most influential movies of all time, not just in Japan but throughout the world. So it is safe to say Akutagawa was a genius artist. Now, let me read two of Akutagawa's haikus. White chrysanthemums. In the fragrance too, there are light and shade. The day autumn began, I had a cavity in my tooth filled with silver. To learn more about another Japanese master storyteller, Haruki Murakami, watch this video. Thank you for watching. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.